Hey, listeners of the Bio Report. Before we get started this week, I wanted to tell you about the digital library from Deep Dive. How much time does your team spend looking for research papers? Google, PubMed, social media. There's got to be a better way. You can now search a reference database of 100 million scientific papers and read the full text of 20 million articles, annotate them, and share with colleagues. It's the smarter way to do research. Here's the best part. If you're like me and been frustrated by not being able to access articles you find because they're behind a paywall, I've got good news. With Deep Dive, you get one-stop affordable research. If you're a listener of the BioReport, you can try the enterprise version of the service for free for one month. Go to deepdive.com forward slash podcast and enter the code BIOREPORT. That's deepdive, D-E-E-P-D-Y-V-E dot com forward slash podcast. And the code is BIOREPORT, one word, all caps. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Type 2 diabetes affects nearly 500 million people worldwide and more than 34 million people in the United States. The disease carries an elevated risk of heart attack, stroke, and other serious complications. Fractal Health believes the approach to treating diabetes by controlling blood sugar levels and other symptoms has been faulty. Research has implicated a critical role the first section of intestine, known as the duodenum, plays in the condition, and the company has developed a minimally invasive endoscopic procedure that it believes can correct the problem. We spoke to Harith Rajagopalan, CEO of Fractal Health, about the company's experimental procedural therapy to target the root cause of diabetes, how it works, and the path forward to commercialization. Harith, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. We're going to talk about diabetes, your company Fractal, and its efforts to develop a therapeutic procedure to treat the condition. Let's start with type 2 diabetes. How big a medical problem does it represent today? Type 2 diabetes is a massive problem for the healthcare system. And the scale of that problem looms large because it's growing very, very rapidly along with the obesity epidemic. There are about 30 million people with type 2 diabetes in the United States this year, 2021. There are going to be approximately 50 million people with the disease in the next 15 years in the U.S. alone. How well controlled is the condition with existing therapies? There are nearly 60 drugs that have been approved to lower blood sugar for people with type 2 diabetes across a range of different classes. 
but more than half of the people with the condition still are not getting good control of their disease. And that's measured by a blood sugar measurement called hemoglobin A1C. So more than 50% of people with type 2 diabetes have a hemoglobin A1C that is above the normal or acceptable range, despite all of these drug therapies that are available. I think most listeners will be familiar with diabetes and think of it as a a problem with the regulation of blood sugar. But can you explain what happens in diabetes at a biologic level? Sure. So type 2 diabetes is an elevation of blood sugar driven by two problems. One is insulin resistance, and the other one is insulin insufficiency. So insulin resistance is a hormonal abnormality that people have recognized to be associated with type 2 diabetes and a whole host of other metabolic diseases, including cardiovascular disease. And when people have insulin resistance, the body's insulin production from the pancreas is not able to function in getting the blood sugar out of the bloodstream and into the cells. There's something that is blocking insulin's action in the cells of the liver and in the muscle and the rest of the body so that the pancreas then has to respond by making more and more insulin to try to overcome that resistance. And eventually the cells of the pancreas that are trying to do that begin to fail and that's the insulin deficiency. So this problem of insulin resistance and insulin insufficiency is intertwined, but both together drive the high blood sugar in type two. And how well understood are the underlying causes that lead to either insulin insufficiency or resistance? We've made a lot of progress on this in the last 10 or 15 years. But if you keep asking the question of why, you eventually run into a roadblock. So why do people have type 2 diabetes? Because their blood sugar is elevated. Why is their blood sugar elevated? It's because their pancreas is failing to produce enough insulin. Why is the pancreas failing to produce enough insulin? Because it's suffering under the weight of insulin resistance. Why are we insulin resistant? Until about 15 years ago, the answer to why are we insulin resistant was simply explained as because of obesity. But the link between obesity and insulin resistance has been really not very clearly established, though it's sort of easy to just say obesity causes insulin resistance. The molecular mechanism tying those two is unknown. And the reason why I say we've made a lot of progress in the past 15 years is because of two fundamental observations that together give a better understanding of why we develop insulin resistance. One of these observations is that people with obesity have a disorder in how they process fats and they release too much fatty acid into their bloodstream. This seems to be fundamental to why cells are resistant to insulin because the fatty acids disrupt the ability of cells to respond to insulin. And then the second observation tied to that is that there are hormonal signals emanating from the gut that influence the amount of fatty acid that is released into the circulation independent of weight. 
And so this then provides an avenue by which we can begin to understand why people develop insulin resistance. There's something wrong in the gut that's causing too much fatty acids to be produced by the cell, the fat cells of the body, put into the circulation, and then these fatty acids get taken up into the liver and into muscle and make those cells resistant to insulin. So ultimately, it all comes back to an understanding that the gut plays a key role in driving insulin resistance. What is the duodenum and what role does it play in diabetes? It's the, the first portion of the small intestine. It comes right after the stomach. And it's the first part of your body that knows for sure that you're about to absorb nutrients. And so it acts not just as a dumb pipe that absorbs nutrients, but as a critical and intelligent signaling beacon that senses what food is coming, how much food is coming, what types of food is coming, and then sends neurohormonal signals, signals from the gut to the brain, signals from the gut to the pancreas and from the gut to the liver, all informing the body of what food is coming or not coming and to help the body get ready for changes from fasting to feeding or from feeding back to fasting. And what has become clear in the past 10 or 15 years is that there is some dysfunction in the neurohormonal signal coming from the gut in how it communicates to both the pancreas and the liver and the brain that's making the body shift towards this insulin resistance state. How well established is the duodenum's role in diabetes and how accepted is that in the medical community today? That, that's a really good question. I think that the, the last 15 years have taught us this, the importance of the duodenum somewhat by accident. People about 20 years ago started to do surgeries for weight loss called bariatric surgeries. And what they started to notice is that when they performed surgeries in which the duodenum was bypassed via a surgical rerouting of the gut, that patients who had type 2 diabetes had a nearly immediate and weight-independent improvement in their diabetes when the duodenum was bypassed. So that started, that was like the first signal that something was wrong with the prevailing conventional wisdom that obesity causes insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes, because in these people, you can make their diabetes go away immediately before they had even lost an ounce of weight. And then around 2010, some enterprising researchers discovered that if you put food back into the path of the duodenum, if you sort of undid the bypass, you could make blood sugar worsen again. So an individual who had type 2 diabetes underwent a duodenal bypass surgery, their diabetes went away, then they undid the bypass, and then they refed the duodenum, and then they found that the diabetes came back. And that became a critical turning point, I think, in our understanding of the role of the duodenum. So now in the past several years, what scientists have been busy trying to understand is what is the mechanism by which this duodenal signal or this duodenum is causing people to be at higher risk of diabetes. 
And I'll tell you that there have been a lot of hypotheses and there are many potential pathways that have been invoked, but there is no single molecule or hormone coming out of the duodenum that seems to be causing it. It's a combination of hormonal signals from the duodenal from the duodenum, as well as signals from the duodenum to the brain through the nervous system that are driving this. Fractals developing the Revita DMR. This is a procedural therapy that targets the root causes of type 2 diabetes. What is Revita DMR? Revita DMR is is a procedure and device system that we at Fractal have developed to ablate and rejuvenate the lining of the duodenal mucosa in a outpatient endoscopic procedural setting, all performed in under an hour. The core concept behind Fractal's approach to type 2 diabetes with Revita is the idea that the driving mechanism of insulin resistance appears to be the interaction of food with a dysfunctional mucosal lining, which is the lining of the duodenum. And if we can ablate that dysfunctional lining, the body can trigger its own natural healing response to recreate that mucosal lining within days. And what we find is that in our pilot clinical studies, after we have performed the Revita DMR procedure, the mucosa heals within days to weeks, and there seems to be an immediate impact on glucose parameters and fat parameters that are driving the patient towards less insulin resistance and lower blood sugars after our procedure. Walk me through the procedure. How exactly does it work? So we do approximately 10 million upper endoscopic procedures in the United States every year. And if you have had one or know someone who's had one, it means that you don't eat anything after midnight and you go into your outpatient endoscopy, your local gastroenterologist's office to their endoscopy suite um, the next day. Patients are brought into the endoscopy suite and they get deep sedation and an endoscope is introduced through the mouth, down the esophagus, past the stomach and into the duodenum. And the endoscope then delivers the catheter system that we've developed. And that catheter system performs a sequence of steps driven by a automated console that we've developed as well that prepares the lining of the duodenum for treatment and then delivers heat energy to the lining in a very precisely controlled manner And at the end of that procedure, which takes about an hour, the endoscope and our device is removed and the patient goes to the recovery room for about 90 minutes and then goes home that day and is typically back to work the very next day, back to their daily routine immediately thereafter. What happens after our system delivers the heat energy is that the lining of the duodenum, the the lining of the intestine, um, those cells are targeted to die, and then they slough into the GI tract and then are passed 
And within days, a new mucosa grows in its place. And the way to understand that is kind of like how your skin heals after you get an injury. So the, the, the body sloughs off the dead skin, and then a new skin grows in from the margins. That's the healing process in the GI tract as well. Is the expectation that this would work for any patient with type 2 diabetes, or would there be some test or imaging procedure that you would actually seek to verify that this patient is a candidate for this procedure? We do believe that the changes in the gut that drive insulin resistance are fundamental to virtually everyone who develops type 2 diabetes. But the patients who are the best candidates for this procedure are those people who have a greater degree of insulin resistance vis-a-vis insulin insufficiency. So put another way, if you know, I told you the two main problems in type 2 diabetes are insulin resistance and insulin insufficiency. And what we've seen in studies so far is that patients who have higher degrees of insulin resistance have greater benefits in their diabetes than patients um, who have lesser amounts of insulin resistance. I think of endocrinologists generally treating patients with diabetes. Would this be a procedure that an endocrinologist would perform or would it require a gastrointestinal surgeon or some other specialist? Yeah, so this is a procedure that'd be performed by a gastrointestinal endoscopist and not an endocrinologist. Um, and, And what I would say is that while endocrinologists absolutely manage patients with type 2 diabetes and write the guidelines for type 2 diabetes, What is also true is that endocrinologists routinely send patients to different types of proceduralists for treating different problems in the endocrine organs that they manage. So for instance, they might send someone to a thyroid specialist if they have hyperthyroidism or to a surgeon if they need to be, if they need to be treated with their adrenal gland. Maybe sort of at the highest level, one might think of lessons of the past 15 years is that the gut is the largest endocrine organ in the body. And so we believe that it makes entirely all the sense in the world for a gastroenterologist to be able to intervene in the gut in a manner that could influence the endocrine function of the gut. And, and that's, the, that's how we see this field evolving. What's known about the safety and efficacy of the Revita DMR from studies that have been performed to date? So in about 500, in about, uh, in the last eight years, we have approximately five to 600 patient years worth of exposure. So over 300 patients have been treated and followed for an average of nearly two years. And we've seen no evidence thus far of any late serious adverse events from the procedure. The vast majority of the patients who undergo this procedure do not experience symptoms at all. And almost everybody has gone back to work and their daily lives the very next day. But we're in a clinical study right now in the US um, under the FDA, an IDE study, in which we are rigorously and prospectively evaluating the safety and the effectiveness of Revita in patients who are insulin treated for their type 2 diabetes. And can anything anything be said at this point about its durability? Do we know how long patients might benefit from this treatment? 
Great question. So in a number of studies that we've conducted and published so far, we seem to have evidence of durability through at least two years of follow-up from a single procedure. And though we haven't formally addressed it, we the procedure was designed to be able to be potentially repeatable should it be necessary. And the idea here is that if sort of at the highest level, if you think about it, like fats and sugars aren't just absorbed into our body and then causing us to become overweight. It's actually that fats and sugars are changing our GI tract and the hormonal signals that the GI tract sends out into the body. And those changes, you know, you might think of kind of like um, the, the fact that when you eat a lot of sugar, you have a high risk of cavities and you need to go to a dentist in order to get your teeth cleaned in order to prevent the cavities from developing. There's, there is a need to think about the impact that the fats and sugars in our diet are having on the GI tract and its function. And one way to think about Revita is that it provides an opportunity to correct the dysfunctional, um, the, the dysfunctional neurohormonal signal that's caused by the food that we have in our modern diets. You call this a procedural therapy. How is it regulated by FDA? Do they regulate the device alone? Do they regulate the device and the procedure? What's the regulatory path forward? This is a new medical device, and it is regulated by the FDA. And the way in which that device is utilized is clearly described in clinical trials and in the instructions for use. And that, so therefore the device and the procedure are regulated by the FDA with a rigorous clinical program. And is the ultimate hope that this could be a functional cure for diabetes? The ultimate hope is to, to sort of test this across a spectrum of type two diabetes. So what do we know? We know that if you perform, if you improve insulin resistance in an individual who is pre-diabetic, you can dramatically reduce the chances of them ever going on to develop diabetes. If you improve insulin resistance in a patient who already has type 2 diabetes, you can reduce the risk of progression of their type 2 diabetes. Right now, type 2 diabetes is almost an inevitably progressive condition, barring some extreme change to your diet and your lifestyle, which is desirable in everyone, but very difficult to achieve for many. And so if you improving insulin resistance is known to have a disease-modifying effect on the progressive nature of type 2 diabetes, and then the host of metabolic abnormalities around type 2 diabetes that are also caused by insulin resistance, like NAFLD-NASH and cardiovascular disease, which are two of the most common insulin-resistant conditions that you see alongside diabetes in these individuals. So the hope is to really find a place for Revita and to demonstrate its safety and effectiveness in a manner that would allow us to see if Revita has the potential to change the trajectory of type 2 diabetes because it has the ability to have a single point in time intervention with long lasting benefits, which we don't really have with existing therapies today. In June, you announced a $100 million venture financing. How far do you expect that to take you? And if all goes well, when might this move to market? So we're in a in one phase three study now in insulin-treated type 2 diabetes. And the financing that we just announced is going to give us the chance to run 
not only this study, but also adjacent studies in earlier stages of type 2 diabetes. So patients who are on oral agents, as well as patients who are pre-diabetic. And the totality of this evidence is going to give us multiple um, proof points for the safety and the effectiveness of Revita across the spectrum of type 2 diabetes over the next two to three years. And this financing is, aim is aimed at supporting us through these next major clinical milestones. It, it strikes me that one of the big challenges here is that endocrinologists might be the decision makers in a patient's mind, but it's the gastrointestinal specialists who will be doing these procedures. How much of a challenge will it be to get these doctors who think in terms of drugs and insulin to embrace a procedure like this? And what's the plan for getting them to think differently? Great question. So first of all, I would point out that there are approximately 3 million people with type 2 diabetes who are already going to be getting an endoscopy this year for one reason or another. So whether we realize it or not, actually, a large proportion of the diabetes population is already showing up in endoscopy for other reasons. And one way to think about Revita is a 30-minute or less bolt-on to another endoscopic procedure. Now, you are absolutely right that they're, that the clinical decision makers are endocrinologists, but what is also true is that seven out of eight patients with type 2 diabetes are currently managed by primary care providers. Primary care providers are often evaluated by insurers on the quality of hemoglobin A1C achievement in their population. So they're under tremendous pressure to be able to find therapies that are going to work in their patients. The problem with diabetes therapy today is that the locus of control really resides with the patient. So from the physician's perspective, if they are being evaluated by quality measures on the hemoglobin A1C of their patients, but the hemoglobin A1C of the patients depends very much on patient adherence to medicines and on the progressive nature of type 2 diabetes, there's nothing in the physician's armamentarium today that offers the physician something to do to favorably impact that for essentially one out of every two patients with type 2 diabetes. So the argument to endocrinologists or to primary care providers or to the clinical and scientific community at large is we have 55 therapies. Access to medicines is not the barrier to achieving better glucose control. Nevertheless, we're going to be spending a trillion dollars a year on type 2 diabetes. One out of every seven healthcare dollars is going to be spent on type 2 diabetes by the end of the decade. So we're going to need to think about doing something differently if we're going to want to be able to get a handle on this disease. But continuing to rely on the medicines that we've been using for the past 15 or 20 years, when we have not made any appreciable impact on the population level achievement of glucose targets, is not really likely to be very effective. So our approach to convincing endocrinologists and to primary care providers is that Revita offers an additional tool, one that does not rely on daily patient adherence to medicine and offers potentially the promise of reducing the need for medication adherence in order to be able to achieve better glucose control targets. And we believe that that's going to be a valuable proposition to patients, to healthcare providers, and to payers as well. Well, 
with regard to payers, what's what's the data that you need to collect to convince them of the value here? I think that the data that we need for the payers is similar to the data that we need for the regulators, which is to demonstrate safety and effectiveness in a placebo-controlled trial as the one that we, as the ones that we are currently conducting. And we'll be following patients in the pivotal trial for one year. And um, earlier studies that we've conducted have shown good um, metabolic control for up to two years and even potentially even more. So um, I think that the the clinical development plan, I think, is one that thankfully, I think, aligns what the regulators and the payers are going to need to see um, in order to be able to believe that this is potentially a value. And ultimately, the business here, is it selling the device or are there other revenue sources from this product that that Fractal can capitalize on? Well, we believe that we are providing a, a new treatment solution and service line to physicians and to hospitals in their management of their populations with type 2 diabetes. And so though we have both a, a console that performs this procedure and a single use catheter that is a disposable that goes along with every procedure that is performed. And we will be selling both the consoles, the capital equipment and the catheters on a per procedure basis to GI units around the country, setting up centers of excellence and then helping those, um, those hospitals and centers establish a, um, a, a center for referral of patients from the community in for these procedures. Harith Rajagopalan, CEO of Fractal Health. Harith, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.